We are in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. In the 16th chapter, we've been, I don't know how long, I think over a year. COVID has like forever thrown off my ability to tell time. I'm like, remember when you came over last week? You're like, that was two years ago. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought it was last week. Um, So the Corinthian church, little review, Paul planted in Acts. You see the story, the back half of Acts is Paul going throughout the known world planting churches. He plants a church in Corinth, not to be confused with Corinth, my hometown, Corinth, and he leaves after uh, a while, and they are a mess. So this whole letter, all we've been talking about over and over and over again is just huge issues that Paul's having to deal with. The first one, they have massive divisions. They kind of have these, these, these uh, idolatry of these different leaders, Peter, Paul, Apollos, Jesus. There's a little Jesus crew, but they're totally uh, fractured as a result of these divisions. There's rampant sexual immorality. There's spiritual gifts. Them using the very gifts from the spirit of the living God is actually causing division rather than unifying the body of Christ. And then last chapter, we saw the worst of all of their uh, sins, denying the resurrection, something that Paul says If what you believe is true, we are of all people most to be pitied, right? And so now we're getting to the last chapter as Paul has been kind of rebuking them, correcting them, and calling them back to the gospel. And then this chapter will kind of be the the final words, tying up loose ends, the final instructions. We, We see he does some of this. Paul does this with his letters. We preached through Romans years ago. Uh, and all of Romans 16 is tell these 12 trillion people hello for me, right? I wasn't here when we preached through that. I haven't listened to that sermon, so I, I don't know how they tackled that, but it's a lot of housekeeping things. And so you may be wondering how in the world are we going to get a whole sermon out of, I want to go to Macedonia and then I might come see you. And I wanted Apollos to come see you and he said no. So that's it, right? How are we going to preach a whole sermon? On, on one level, this is housekeeping. Right, Put some stuff away for the, the, the needs of the church in Jerusalem. I'm going to come see you if I can. But on a deeper level, Paul giving these instructions to the church of uh, Corinth is assuming that their hearts have been actually transformed by the gospel. He assumes that the gospel has taken root in their heart and therefore their lives are going to be changed. They're going to respond to these instructions as someone with the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of them and people bearing the fruit of the spirit. Uh, Over the past few weeks, I would think everybody in this room along with most of the known world who has access to the news or Twitter have been amazed at the resolve and just the, the, the fortitude, whatever you want to call it, the boldness of the people of Ukraine. Okay, President Zelensky, when offered the chance to flee, a town that was being shelled said, well, I'm sure we'll go down in every museum uh, in the world, the fight is here, I need ammunition, not a ride. Right, we were like, that, okay, can I vote for that guy? Right, we we're all like <laughs> researching voting laws. Uh, we see soldiers on uh, Snake Island who know there's zero chance of victory, but they refuse to surrender. You see the people, the civilians of Ukraine. I've seen the craziest videos I've ever seen. An old lady face-to-face with a Russian soldier telling her, you sh- or he, she tells him, put uh, you know, sunflower seeds in your pocket so that when you die, flowers sprout over your grave. And you're like, whew, that is a feisty grandma. Uh, I saw a video uh, of a farmer taking his tractor and towing away a Russian tank. I saw a video of a guy who was driving down the street and saw a landmine in the street and thought, you know, uh, a Ukrainian tank might 
go over this and explode. That's the intent. So with a cigarette in his mouth, he got out of his car and moved it into the woods, and his buddy filmed it. Uh, one more. I saw uh, a, a Russian soldier that had been captured and surrendered and was surrounded by Ukrainian civilians who gave him tea and food and FaceTimed his mom to let her know he was okay. And he's just weeping at this kindness that they're showing him over and over again, the actions over, of, of the people of Ukraine as making the world ask, what is inside these people that is making them act this way? Because it is so mind-blowing to us. It is so counter how we would naturally act and in a similar way, but really even to a, a deeper degree, when the gospel takes root in someone's heart, when the spirit of the living God dwells inside someone, it produces a life that is countercultural, that is completely different than the rest of the world. And the world looking in should say, what is it inside this person that causes you to live in this way? And so as we look today at Paul giving these instructions, he's not just trying to manipulate them. He's not just trying to say, hey, it'd be really nice if you would do these things. He's expecting they will respond in obedience because he expects the Spirit has done a work. The gospel has taken root in their heart, and therefore they live differently. So specifically the three areas of kind of transformation that Paul is expecting that we're going to see today. Three big buckets of transformation of the people of Corinth are radical generosity, that they are radically generous as a result of being transformed by the gospel, holistic hospitality, radical generosity, holistic hospitality, and then lastly, humble unity. Radical generosity, holistic hospitality, and then humble Unity. Let's look at that first one, radical generosity. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put, a, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what's happening here, the need for this collection in the first place, is there's been a famine. There's been some sort of famine happening in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is suffering, and specifically the churches in Jerusalem are suffering as well, and there's this massive need. And so what Paul is doing to meet this need of this church over here in Jerusalem is traveling throughout where he has planted churches. So Galatia, that was his kind of first missionary journey, and now he's making his way through Macedonia and coming to uh, Corinth and asking for help. You help these guys who are in need and who are suffering, specifically through giving. So you see that. As I directed the churches in Galatia, so also I'm asking you to do. Help. How are they to help? That's the question. How are they to help? Verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you, so not just the, the rich among you, everybody, is to set something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. So pretty simple, straightforward. There's a huge need in Jerusalem. So Paul is soliciting the Corinthians to help with that need. They need to put money aside. When Paul gets there, he's going to either send somebody with the gift, with the money, or he's going to go himself, and then Jerusalem will be helped. Straightforward. Okay, next point. I'm just kidding. Uh, let's zoom in a little bit. Notice something, because this is important. This is what takes it from just housekeeping to an actual understanding. Paul expecting their hearts to be transformed. Notice Paul isn't 
doing what we so often see uh, people asking for money, making some sort of manipulative motivational speech that's either to guilt you or to like say, look how great this thing is, give quickly before this conviction fades, the way, fades away. Uh, when I was an intern at a church eight years ago, uh, there, was a, there was a local nonprofit that the church partnered with, and me and another pastor went to their ball, charity, whatever it's called, the thing where they make you give them money. We went to that as a partner church. Uh, and this was a Christian organization, uh, and so they had somebody get up uh, and give a motivational speech about their life. They hired this lady whose mom was a drug addict, and she, you know, had really bad circumstances, but then made it in life. And then she said, tag, you're it. And then the leader of the organization got up and goes, get out your checkbooks. And me and this other pastor were like, what is happening? What a, why didn't they like, I don't know, open the Bible to the trillion places where God says, give, you know, when there's a need. Why did they get this person who wasn't a Christian and gave a very unchristian presentation of why we should give and things like that? Paul's not doing that. Paul is expecting that they will give because he expects their hearts have been transformed to radical generosity. If the gospel is meant to transform everything about your life, one of the key evidences of that should be how you use your finances, should be how you use your money. You don't use your money, your resources, in the same way the world does, primarily for yourself. And even deeper, you don't give your resources, your money, like the world does, primarily for yourself. Every celebrity in the world has a charity that they've probably started, right? But what are, what are always the motivations behind it? Either notoriety or tax write-offs or whatever it may be. It's always selfish. Jesus says, when you throw a banquet, go out into the streets and invite the poor. Invite people that cannot pay you back. That's the kind of giving. That's the kind of hearts I want. You, when you know it cannot be repaid back to you. Completely Selfless. So, notice this. The Corinthian church giving to the church in Jerusalem. Notice two things. They're far away. They probably never met a single person from Jerusalem, unless, you know, an apostle came over to encourage them or something like that. They've never met these people, and the Jerusalem church probably would have been almost completely Jewish. The Corinthian church would have been, by far, majority Gentile, two groups that are socially conditioned to hate one another. This is a situation where only the gospel could compel you to help these people. Not only do you not know them, so you can't receive a thank you card, but society has conditioned you to hate these people. Again, this is a uh, situation where only the gospel could actually transform you to freely give to that church, that need that you see. Notice, second thing, this is really important. Paul is not, so he's not, he's not manipulating them. Right? Not trying to uh, puff them up with a motivational speech. He's just expecting them. They see a need. A, a Christian should meet that need. And then notice, secondly, he's not advocating for unwise generosity, unwise giving. He's not saying, give away everything you can, and then, you know, you can't feed your family. Okay? He's expecting faithfulness as well. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So two things with that. First of all, notice it's not about amount, the amount of giving that you have. It's about your heart. It's about a transformed heart that wants to give, that wants to meet a need. Remember Jesus looking at, with his disciples, looking at a rich man giving a whole bunch of money really publicly and letting everybody know how much money he's giving. And then a widow comes up with two copper coins, puts those in, and walks away 
And what does Jesus say? She gave far more than he did. Clearly, she didn't give more amount than he did, but why is Jesus saying that? Because her gift was sacrificial. She gave out of her poverty, not out of her abundance. It was coming from a heart that had been transformed. So you see Paul following that. It's not about the amount, it's about the heart. And then the second idea, perhaps the more important idea, is Paul is, uh, you know, this idea is as he may prosper. Paul is saying, every way that you have been blessed, you need to realize that you have been blessed by someone. Someone is blessing you. Someone is prospering you. All the prosper you're receiving has been given to you by someone. Even the mon- uh, uh, For you to even have money in the first place to give away, it had to be given to you by a divine hand, which is really hard for us Americans, us conservative, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, Americans to get, right? You're a self-made man. You worked hard for everything. You had bad circumstances, but you just picked yourself up right, and worked hard. And if others would just be as awesome as you, our world would be awesome, and we wouldn't need all these programs or whatever, right? That's how we think. Let's be honest. Okay, I can see your face is getting red. Let me keep preaching. Let me say this very lovingly. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, breathing God's air. Who gave you eyes that can see? Who gave you a mind that could think, that could process and problem solve? Who gave you a body that could transport you? to places, right? Who has given you literally everything, including the next heartbeat and the next breath? God. Everything you've received has come from a divine hand. To quote Tim Keller, the fact that you weren't born 1,200 years ago in the mountains of Tibet is completely by his hand. The fact that you're born with bootstraps on your feet, there's billions who don't have any. Everything you have has come from a gracious God. That's Paul's second point. Every blessing you have comes from someone else. So you be generous with it. Uh, Many of you know and have sent me very uh, loving messages. My grandfather passed away two weeks ago. Uh, And so I uh, spent kind of that whole week and then some of last week uh, in Greenville where he grew up, where he lived, just kind of taking care of uh, affairs and things like that and meeting with different people from his church. And what my grandfather uh, was known for was generosity. Uh, and what was so interesting is hearing all these stories, story after story, everyone I talked to had their own individual unique story that really only they knew because he would never let anybody know. There were several times I heard that the church, his church in really lean times, someone would let him know and he would just pay everyone's salary anonymously. Uh, there were several times if he heard about a family who lost their home or something, he would secretly, you know, supply their needs, and he never told anyone. And the most common thing that was, you know, everybody's telling me these stories, and the most common thing that I heard at the very end of all these stories was he knew it wasn't his over and over and over again. How could he do that? How could he be so generous? Everyone's understanding was he knew it wasn't his. He had this understanding that everything he received came from a divine hand. So how do you get there? How do you get to that place where you can be that radically generous? Number one, realize it's God's anyway. And number two, what what do we typically say? Why can you forgive? Why should you forgive? Because you've been forgiven. So why can you, why should you be generous? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why can you give generously? Why can you be radically generous? Because you have a Savior who, though he was the king of the universe, stepped off of his throne and made himself poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, might inherit eternal life, might inherit, as Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's ultimately why you can be radically generous. In fact, Paul says his, his word there in verse 3, he says, I will send, you know, I'll send these guys ahead to carry your gift to Jerusalem. That word gift there is the same Greek word used for grace. In fact, he's, Paul's drawing on this idea of you uh, being graciously generous. You can be graciously generous because when you were poor, someone was graciously generous to you. That's Paul's understanding here. Because he became poor, you've been able to become rich. Why would you not then leap at the chance to bless others like you've been blessed? That's the idea. So what does this do? What does radical generosity in our hearts do? Why is this so vital? First of all, just the most practical sense, you meet needs. People who are starving in Jerusalem are fed. Number two, God is glorified. Number three, your witness is seen. This is peculiar to a world that is prone towards selfishness, right? Your witness is seen. Radical generosity is an incredible testimony. Again, with my, my grandfather, I'm going to use him a couple of times just because he's been on my mind. Uh, one of the things my dad told me when he was first looking for his, job, uh, his first job, his interview, uh, the person interviewing him actually did my grandfather's taxes, and he said, I could tell your dad, my grandpa, surrendered to a higher power by just looking at his tax returns, I don't think that guy was a Christian. I mean, there's just a, a witness of radical generosity. It is peculiar. And then number four, you are rewarded. You are rewarded, but it's not like the world is rewarded. It's infinitely greater. What does Jesus say again? Don't let, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't let anyone see. Why? Because there's one who sees. Don't let anyone see you. There's one who does see you, no matter what, your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. Again, my grandfather, nobody knew all these stories until we all got together and shared them. He was always doing these things in secret, and you might think, yeah, I get that general principle. Wouldn't it, nice to, wouldn't it be nice to know? That guy is pretty generous. Wouldn't that be a nice reward? But I know, I was thinking uh, just yesterday, when my grandfather closed his eyes for the last time and opened them again, he saw the one who sees, and he received a reward that is infinitely greater than the cheap praise of man. One of my favorite lines in the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. You will be rewarded with a reward infinitely greater than the cheap praise of man. That's a motivation for radical generosity. What if we actually lived like that? What if we actually had hearts that were transformed to such a degree where every motivation for how you spend your resources, your finances, was for the Heavenly Father who sees? Wouldn't that transform everything? Wouldn't you actually know then it is better to give than to receive? Does that characterize your life? Could people look at how you spend your money, your finances, use your resources and say their life is characterized by radical generosity. 
Can people look at you and like the people of Ukraine say, what is it in them that has made them so unselfish, that has made them so willing to just leap at every need that they see and figure out how they're going to help that situation, that impulse that they have in their heart? And again, I'm not, uh, Jeff talked about giving this morning. We didn't plan this, this this back-to-back shelling of, you know, giving talk, so... Sorry, just happened with God's providence. But Jeff Jeff talked about this morning, we're not talking about swinging the pendulum to the prosperity gospel. Again, Paul's not talking about unwise giving where you can't feed your family. But rather, is there this kind of general character of your life, how you use your resources to bless that just looks so counterculture to a selfish world that is all about me and my dreams and building my vision and all these different things. Does that characterize your life? And if not you may have not fully understood your Savior who, though he was rich, became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the first thing Paul's just expecting. He's expecting radical generosity from the Corinthians. That's the first evidence of a transformed heart by the gospel. You use your resources in a way that is just radically generous. Next, we see this big section, and now you guys are like, how in the world? Okay, Paul's travel plans. How are we going to get something out of this? Uh, The next thing we'll see, Paul's next expectation for the Corinthians, the next transformation of their heart expectation Paul Paul has is uh, holistic hospitality. Look at verse 5. I know that's real generic. Look at verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace and he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So, before we look at the Corinthians, look at Paul real quick. This is kind of a side point. Notice how Paul describes all of his plans. I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay. I hope to spend the winter if the Lord permits. This is worth noting. Paul has also been transformed by the gospel, and all of his plans, desires, hopes for the future are filtered through and stewarded with the understanding that God is completely in control. I want to do all these things, but my steps are ordered by a divine, perfectly seeing, all-knowledgeable Father who will guide every step. I want to do this. I want to come see you if the Lord permits. That's worth noting. That's another evidence of a transformed heart. But what is he expecting for the Corinthians? Holistic hospitality. If the gospel does transform your life, it's not just finances, it's also how you use your home. It's your life. It's, it, it transforms how you fundamentally relate towards others. Biblical hospitality isn't just, you know, having people over for meals, although that's an essential part of it. It's kind of the impulse to see those who are far off and pull them in to your life, pull them into your inner circle to make sure no one is on the fringes. It's this impulse to bring people in. Kind of the picture you get is at a party or a gathering and you're there with your buddies and you see the person in the corner staring at the wall because they're probably introverted, right? And that impulse of, I wanna go get them and bring them in here, even though they may hate it. On the other side of this, they'll have friends, right? That impulse, that's hospitality. 
right? When you hear of a need to instantly filter through, okay, is there a way I can help or encourage or bring that person in? That's this idea of hospitality, which is no small thing in the scriptures. Hospitality is one of those gifts that we think, yeah, it's nice. You know, hospitality, administration, encouragement, they're nice. They're fun to have, but, you know, it's not like teaching, and it's not like prophecy, and it's not like all these cool things. I mean, that's exactly what the Corinthians were thinking. We saw that when we looked at the spiritual gifts. Hospitality in the scriptures are so important. It's a requirement for elders. You can be the best teacher in the world. You can be godly in all these different areas. If you're not hospitable, you are not qualified to be an elder. It's a requirement for elders. Look at 1 Peter 4. I love this. The end of all things is at hand. Right? He's got his end is near sign on on the streets. He's got his megaphone. Therefore, right, you'd expect whatever he says next to be very, very, very important. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. I love that. The end is near, so... Be hospitable, right? The world's, you know, coming to an end, so be self-controlled and hospitable. It's not really what we would expect. Romans 12, Paul's going through these kind of, what, what are the essential marks of a Christian's life? Says this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in in prayer, here it is, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, this, this impulse, right up there with loving one another, with serving one another, seek to show hospitality. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, seek to keep showing hospitality. Some of you, without knowing it, have entertained angels in your home. And you're like, what? Please elaborate. Don't just drop that and then, let, you know, seek to show hospitality. Some of you have entertained angels unaware right? Hospitality is so core to the life of a Christian. In fact, uh, anytime we talk about prayer, we always talk about you see massive movements of God in the scriptures and in church history happen. They're always preceded by a group of people that devote themselves to prayer. You see that in Acts all the time. It's pretty similar with hospitality. You see Elijah and Elisha being cared for by widows right before, you know, they raise people from the dead or these massive movements of God happen. Paul coming into a city and just being hosted by a hospitable guest right before the gospel goes forth and churches are planted. It is so core to who we are as Christians. So what, what is Paul's expectation specifically for the Corinthians? First thing we see is literally taking him and Timothy when they show up into their home. Verse 6. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, right? There's this expectation that his physical needs would be met. This is probably what we naturally think of as hospitality, housing, food, a bed, stuff like that. But that's not all. Look at verse 10. There's also uh, care and encouragement. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. In fact, that word, that phrase, put him at ease, literally means make sure he has nothing to fear. Paul's getting this, giving this picture of his anxieties are kind of on you. They're, they're, you, you. You encourage him, calm him, bring him in, tell him everything's okay, right? I think Timothy has some self-esteem issues. You know, Paul tells him later, don't let look, anyone look down on you because you're young. And here, 
make sure he's okay, right? So they're, they're to care for him. They're to encourage him, to calm him. Next, protection. Verse 11, still speaking of Timothy, and let no one despise him. Uh, the Corinthians, again, there's only a small group that are like fans of Paul. The rest are fans of Apollos and Peter. So there's probably a lot of people who aren't going to be thrilled with this letter saying, hey, you know everything that you're doing? Quit. Right? Uh, and so Timothy's going to show up first before Paul, and they're probably not going to be happy to see Paul's, you know, number one disciple. Paul knows this and saying, you know, make sure no one despises him. Protect him from slander. Protect him from people's hatred. It's kind of that idea you get of like, you don't pick on my little brother or my little sister. Uh, my wife, you knew that there was a Claudia analogy coming. Um, my wife is Norwegian, so she grew up in Norway. Scandinavia, they don't have many bullies. You know, they're very peaceful people, but there was a bully at her high school that picked on everybody. Uh, and he was, as you would imagine, bigger than everybody and probably really insecure. Uh, and he picked on, Claudia is the oldest of three, and this bully, unfortunately, one day picked on Claudia's youngest brother. And Claudia went up to him and punched him in the nose, and he bled, and he cried, and he fled, and he never picked on another kid again. Now, I'm not advocating for physical violence, okay? What I am saying is the impulse to say slander, gossip, False accusations will have no place in my church. I'm going to go after those. If people are being mistreated, not with your fist, but with your rebuke, right, that's on you to, to squash, to kill, right? If, when, when seeds of disunity are being sown, do you go after those? Or do you participate when there's gossip happening, when there's slander happening? Do you participate or do you shut that down? Right? That's a key part of hospitality, protection. I was reading a story uh, a couple months ago of uh, another church. A deacon heard uh, that somebody in the church had spread a bunch of lies about this pastor, and so uh, their pastor. And so he went, rebuked the guy, found out everybody he had said that to, called all of them and said, none of that's true, and kind of rebuked them for not rebuking this guy. And then he called the pastor and he said, hey, this thing happened, you don't have to worry about it, I fixed it. And the pastor was like, okay, all right, this guy's got my back, right? That's, an, that's the idea of protection, going after things that the enemy will use to tear the church apart. Let no one despise him, Don't, no one treat him badly, right? So it's not just the, the positive, you are to encourage him and to care for him, it's to, you stop the negative, you protect people. That's a mark of hospitality. And then lastly, mission, Verse 6 and verse 11, Paul in verse 6, he wants to show up, spend the winter with them. And then verse 6, so that you may send me or you may help me on my journey wherever I may go. And then Timothy, when Timothy shows up, verse 11, help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Hospitality isn't just, just recovering, just treat, uh, tr uh, treating wounds. It's also sending, participating in the mission of God. So this picture is one of holistic hospitality. Someone comes in, you bring them into your home, you care for them, you encourage them, you protect them from slander, and then you exhort them and send them out to continue the mission of God. That's the picture that we get. So here's the question. Are you hospitable with your whole life? Not just with your home, but are you a breath of fresh air to people that encounter you? Are you caring are you encouraging? Do you naturally bear one another's burdens? Do you go after slander? Do you cut off 
slander. When people are around you, do they feel filled with life or are they actually more drained? There are people I know, whenever I'm encouraged, I just kind of need to get in their orbit and they will figure it out. Even if I'm smiling and faking, you know, with my positivity, they'll be like, something's off. I can smell it. You're like, whoa. And then they'll encourage me, right? I just want to kind of get around them. Is that you? Are people filled with life as a result of being around you? Or are you the opposite? Do you view others, not how you can give life to them and encourage them and strengthen them, but rather what you can get from them? Rather than giving life, you take it from those who are around you. Do, are people drained as a result of hanging out with you because you're always complaining or you're very cynical or always talking about how no one listens to you and if they just would, the world would be great. Has the gospel made you holistically hospitable? And again, if not, then you may have not fully grasped this gospel message about when you were far off, someone, with a capital S, someone came after you. When you were in the corner, when you were, you know, the paralyzed introvert, Jesus has his 99, and he doesn't say, you know, one going off, I still got my 99. He goes after the one. He went after you. Have you forgotten that, or do you see that you have been shown ultimate hospitality, and therefore you can show it to others? Has the gospel transformed you to be holistically hospitable? That's the second. Radical generosity, holistic hospitality, and then lastly, verse 12, humble unity. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos... I strongly urged him to visit you with the brothers, uh, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is the funniest one to me. Paul says, hey, Apollos wanted to show up, and he did not, like in any possible way, want to. But I guess he will one day. So I was like, how do I pull stuff out of this? So just on its surface, again, Paul is saying, I told Apollos to come. He said no. I guess he'll go one day. Next verse. But remember who we're dealing with. Remember this church. Remember the context of this whole letter. What is the first problem that the Corinthians are facing? What's the first problem that Paul has to address? Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. First thing Paul says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, uh, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified to you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Right. That's the first problem. He's still facing it in chapter 3. Look at 1 Corinthians Three, three through four, specifically about him and Apollos. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving in a human way, behaving not as Christians? Verse four. And when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not uh, being merely human? So that's the first issue. These aren't just like little fan clubs. This is sinful idolatry of these different leaders. And if Paul was seeing things as the Corinthians saw things, he would not want Apollos to go. That's his rival in the minds of the Corinthians. He's going to go. He's going to preach. People are going to like him more. They'll like me less. He would not want him to go, but nothing could be further from Paul's heart. Here's Paul's heart. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive the wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field God's building. Paul has no such worldly, fleshly human eyes that the Corinthians have. Rather, he knows we're on the same team. We're fellow workers. I planted you. Apollos came and taught you, watered, gave uh, a lot of solid teaching. And who is the one who did anything to your heart? Not me, not my awesomeness, not his awesomeness. God is the one who gave the growth. Paul knows who should be glorified when Paul and Apollos are put forward. He says, neither. I nor he are anything. It is he and he alone who should be glorified. We're servants. He's the one who gives the growth, and so he's the one that gets the glory. Paul's eyes are on the kingdom, not his own little kingdom, his own glory. His eyes are fixed on God's glory. And when I read stuff like this, a helpful check for me, and I think for any, anybody in ministry, maybe for us as well, is we preach the gospel, and we want people to come to know Christ, we want people to be conformed in his image, and disciples made, and not just shallow converts, but people who love and delight in God. Now, what if a church across town who preaches the gospel and is great, God just brings incredible revival there, and they're going like crazy, and their pastor becomes famous, and he's writing a whole bunch of books. What does my heart do? Does it, like Paul, just praise God and say, look at this, what we are after is happening. God is pouring out his spirit, and he's bringing incredible growth. Or do I think, I mean, I, my analogies are funnier than his. I don't get it. I mean, is it like he's handsome and more handsome than me? Like, does my heart instantly go back to my own glory? That's a constant thing for everyone in the church, everyone with their favorite pastors, everyone with, you know what I'm saying? How, how are we so divided today? We've taken our eyes off the one who we are made to glorify. We don't see like Paul sees here. We're obsessed with our own glory. We don't, we don't have our eyes set on the kingdom or the king and his glory. And as a result, we have kind of superficial unity. It's still kind of about us. But if our eyes are set on our king, Jesus Christ, and his glory alone, like Paul's, we can actually celebrate the work of the Spirit anywhere. We can praise God as revival breaks out anywhere. Uh, Years ago, again, when I was an intern and I went to that horrible charity ball, around that time with a different pastor, I was having breakfast with him and he was doing the pastor thing of saying, okay, young intern, what do you want to do? What do you feel called to do? So I'm just telling him all this stuff. And he was really encouraging and said, you know, that's great. I think the Lord's going to use you in mighty ways and go do this, go do that, and then get ready to just die and be forgotten. And I thought, Okay, thank you. And I actually broke down crying, which doesn't surprise anybody anymore. I made sure I didn't get much sleep last night so that I would be very emotionally unavailable because I'm like, the crying's getting a bit much, even for me, right? Uh, and so I've never forgotten that breakfast. I can see it vividly. I can see his face. I can see him telling me that because I know I'm prone to have my eyes drift down to my own glory just like the Corinthians, just like really all of us are, to take our eyes off of the one that we were made to glorify. Uh, Jim Elliott, a missionary martyr uh, in the 50s, I'm reading his biography that his wife wrote uh, with a lot of his journal entries, and 
He talked about missionaries being a strange, peculiar people, and I think this could be applied to all Christians. He says, you know, missionaries are a strange people, simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody, with a capital S, a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. I think that's a good picture of what we are as servants of the living God. We will one day die and be forgotten. His name will never be forgotten. And so... Do you and do I know the freedom of this kind of humility that Paul is showing, where it is all about God? He is the one that we exalt. It is so exhausting to try and keep up this image of being a good person. One, man's praise will never satisfy you. Second, you're always going to have to fake it. Do you know the rest, the rest and the freedom of saying, I am a sinner saved and adopted by a gracious God. And you can actually lay all that nonsense down. Do you know the rest and the freedom of saying, I serve him and him alone. My name will be forgotten one day. Again, my grandfather, everyone's talking about him. My dad loved him. I loved him. My two-year-old son will see pictures of him. My son's son will never think about him, ever. He might see a picture and ask, who's that, and then move on. Now, I think if my grandpa heard that, he wouldn't be depressed. He would say, good, because I didn't live for me. I lived for the name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Lord. That's the name we live for. That's the glory that we're after. And only when we do that, only the gospel can create that kind of humility, that unity, where you're not looking for your glory and you're not fighting. You're all focused on the same goal. Paul can promote his rival because he's so consumed with God's glory and there is so much rest and being self-forgetful in that way because you're only concerned about his name being remembered, not your own. So, chapter 16, we've got one more verse, or one more, uh, one more text on it next week and then we'll be done with 1 Corinthians, but that's the first half. The gospel transforms It has to. The seed of the gospel does bear fruit. The spirit of God dwelling inside you bears the fruit of the spirit. Here specifically, we see radical generosity, holistic hospitality, and humble unity. And here's the most important thing for you to hear. All of this is meant to be a delight, not a duty. You could give away all of your resources. You could have a billion people in your home. It's not true. You could have someone in your home every day. Hyperbole is unhelpful sometimes, and you can, you can do all these things in your own strength, and it will be a cold religious duty. There's only one way to get all of this, all these commands, into the area of delight. C.T. Studd, who's a, a missionary years ago, wrote this, wrote a poem, and this is the last line, fairly famous. Only one life, which will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Here's the heart. And when I'm dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. How do you get there? How do you get to that place where it's not just duty, okay, I'll burn out my lamp for Jesus, but it's, it's how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. There's only one way, and you probably know what's gonna, what I'm going to say. Only Jesus Christ can turn duty into delight. Only Jesus can make you an actual cheerful giver. Not a plaster on a smile as you write the check and your insides are dying giver. An actual cheerful, an actual joyful giver. Only Jesus can make you radically generous from a heart that loves to be radically 
generous when you actually see that though he was rich, though he was the king of the universe, he became poor for you so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The son of the living God, who has for all eternity shared in beautiful fellowship with the Father, became a man, took your wrath and my wrath so that we might be brought into that family. He has been radically, radically generous towards you. When he becomes your ultimate treasure, then you can actually be radically generous from a heart of joy. Only Jesus can make you truly hospitable when you see that he has displayed ultimate hospitality. He left his home and came down so that where he is, you may be also. What does he say to the disciples in the upper room right before he goes to the cross? I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Ultimate hospitality. When you see that, can you freely, joyfully open your home, open your life to others? And when we see that he's the only one who we're after, his glory, then we can be truly humble and unified, not seeking our own glory, but like Jim Elliott say, with all of our might, with joyful hearts, we are a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt a somebody. Let's pray. Father, we want so badly to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It is so crippling to see a bunch of rules and then think, how am I going to do these? And just looking to our own strength, I pray that you would banish such moralistic thoughts and that we would actually know, know by experience, know by our daily walk, what does it look like to wait upon the Lord? What does it look like to cry out to you and you to produce the fruit of the Spirit, to declare with all of our might? It's not by our works. I can't boast about anything. It's completely by my gracious God who has taken away my heart of stone and given me a living heart, a heart of flesh, and put his Spirit within me. We want you to do that. We don't just want more Bible knowledge. We don't just want more rules that we can recite and try to follow. We want life change. We want to be conformed into the image of your Son, and you do that. You have to do that through your word, through your spirit, actually changing our hearts. Without you, this is an activity, a pointless one. But with you, this is a transforming reality. And so that we, we pray that you would, that our hearts would continually be molded to look more and more like your son, that we would uh, joyfully give, we would be generous, we would be hospitable, we would be unified, we'd be humble, we'd be self-forgetful because all we want is for you to be glorified and that that would be a witness to a world that is quite the opposite and that there would be this desire to say, what is inside you that makes you act in such a way that is so counter that we would be salt and that we would be light, that you would do that by your spirit. We pray that you would in your son's name. Amen.